All right, everybody. Have you enjoyed the conference so far? Has it been good? Good. Well, it's good to see you guys. Welcome to the three o'clock session today. You are going to thoroughly enjoy this session. It's such an honor to have you here at ARC. My name is Landon Kiker. I pastor Livingstone Church in San Antonio, Texas, ARC plant number 465. If you ever want some queso and chips, come down. We'll host you. It'll be a lot of fun, but we're so glad to have you here at ARC. It's a big family. Speaking of family, you're probably really close to each other right now, and so now you know how your people feel while you're preaching. It's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? All right? So yeah, that's why we do this to you. All right? So go ahead. And if you need to wiggle around, that's fine, but if, if we got room, if you'd like to go up and stand up in the back, that's cool too. We got some room back there, but you are going to thoroughly enjoy this session. You get to hear from Rob Hoskins today. It's going to be incredible. Rob is the president of One Hope, and he took the leadership up in 2004 and ministered 100 million kids a year presenting the gospel to them, and he's been part of consulting and helping with ARC since it began. So there's a lot of people have been putting into ARC since the beginning, so he's one of these guys that have gotten to see it grow. And so when they're up there talking and they're saying they're living the dream, there's a lot of, a lot of thought that's gone into that and a lot of prayer. He's an innovative strategist and a gifted communicator, and He's been on the board of OR, the president board board of ORU, and he just recently stepped down from that. Now he's going to take on a brilliant role of a grandfather here soon. So that's the best title ever. So my dad says, he says, "You're not my son anymore. Just give me the grandkids." So if you're, yeah, so he's getting ready to take that on, and you're going to thoroughly enjoy this session. Can I pray for you before we begin? Father, would you open up our hearts and minds today? Would there be more that you can pour in? God, pour in more and more and more and more into our hearts today. God, as we hear from Mr. Hoskins, would there be something unlocked inside of us even more that we can take back to our cities that is going to change the world where we stand? Father, we thank you for this time. We don't take it for granted at all, sir, that we get to learn from the best. In Jesus' name, may we receive. And everybody said amen. Would you welcome Mr. Hoskins? Wow, Mr. Hoskins, I like, I'm going to travel with you, man. I get some respect around here. It is a joy to be here with all of you, and uh, thank you all for being here. And uh, this, is, um, this is a treat for me to speak on this particular subject. Um, and for those of you that were in my session um, last year, I talked about a theology of the city. And so I want us to sort of give a baseline uh, of a theology of the city, because you really can't understand this kind of subject about pastoring a city. And I'll, I'll talk more about how I interpret that, that phrase, pastoring a city, because what I, I really think it means is helping lead a movement within a city is, is probably the more appropriate title. But you, you can't know how to do that if you don't know how God feels about his city. You can't know um, how to do that if you don't know what the Bible says about this actual social institution called a city. If we don't understand what a city is how God feels about a city, what the Bible says about a city. You ain't leading nothing in your city if you don't understand that about it. So, so we're going to start with sort of that base time, foundationally, what does the Bible say about the city? Um, and then we'll talk about what is your role, your particular attitude as a spiritual leader within the context of the city. And then I want to get super practical. So I'm going to go really, I mean, theology of the city is like six hours of content. I'm writing my doctoral dissertation right now on gospel city movements. I'm on my 282nd page on that. So we got a lot of content, and we've got an hour. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go fast, and I'm going to try and lay this foundation for theology of the city, but there's way more that we can go deeper on that. And then we're going to talk about what your particular role is as a spiritual leader within the context of the city. And then I want to get really practical about what do we actually mean by pastoring a city or leading a gospel movement within the context of your city. And some of you say, well, like, why in the world would you as One Hope, so this is One Hope, Bible app for kids. How many of you have Bible app for kids, have kids that use Bible app for kids? So why is uh, a missionary, which is what I am, that, uh, that is consumed with affecting destiny by providing God's word to children and youth. So we're a children's missions agency. Why is it that you're spending so much of your time talking about cities? What, what, what is this fascination, this, this um, intentionality that you have in your, in your studies, in your work, in your speaking, in your teaching about, about cities? And, and the reason is, is because if, if I as a missionary... Am, am hoping to fulfill my mission of God's word every child, living in the 21st century reality, I better understand the urban context. 
I mean, I better understand what's happening in the cities. And, and more particularly, what I want to speak to is what is happening in, in global cities and, and in progressive cities. So there, there's an urban reality that's happening everywhere around the world. I mean, 100 years ago, only 14% of the world's population lived in cities. Five years ago, we passed the 50% mark. Within the next 20 years, global pop 78% of people will be living in the cities. I mean, we are living in the greatest urban reality in, in history. This is, a, this, is a, this, is, this is what's happening. And so what we have to realize is the ground is moving underneath us, and everything is changed. But for the most part, I want to propose to you that the church still thinks suburban and rural in their theology and in their methodology. And if, if that's the case, then the church that I serve, so, so One Hope is a missions agency. We believe in a local church missiology, which means that the only way we're going to accomplish is if the church does our work. So this year, One Hope will reach 114 million kids. People say, how do you reach 114 million kids a year? And I kind of laugh. I go, we don't reach 114 million. The local church reaches 114 million kids around the world. So tens of thousands of churches around the world that are reaching out to the, And if they, those churches that I serve don't understand what's happening right now socially, within the context of cities, and particularly these big progressive cities, and the spirit of the city in the 21st century, they're not going to be able to reach children effectively. They're not going to be able to disciple the next generation of kids if they don't understand what's going on in our urban world. So that's my, that's my commitment to city. That's on, a, that's on a professional level and a ministerial level, but it's also on a personal level. I have two daughters that live in New York City. And let me tell you, over the last seven years, as my girls have moved into New York City, they have been asking me questions that my Bible school and seminary don't have answers for. Their urban reality just was not, did not prepare, I did not prepare them adequately for the urban reality that they face today. And I increasingly think that's the case of the church, that we have to really begin to dig deep if we're going to answer the questions of the next generation that the culture, the urban culture is going to be asking them. They don't have adequate answers to those issues of sexual identity, of, of creation and evolution. Of, of deep-seated questions that a, that a thin, and what Walter Brueggemann said is, we have a faith in America that's widely held but greatly reduced. A reduced gospel does not work in a progressive urban environment. And so how do we thicken our gospel in the city? So first, I'm going to dive deep into theology. of the, city. the Bible has a lot to say about the city. I mean, we have the creation of God in the first chapter of the Bible, but a few chapters later, we have the creation of man. Here Cain kills his brother, and what's his response to, the, to, to what God tells him? So he kills his brother, and God says, there's consequences to what's going to happen to you, and the consequence is, Cain, you're going to become a wanderer. Now Cain says, God, that's too much for me. I cannot handle being a wanderer. That's not fair. Well, number one, no. Fair is, you, I kill you. That's fair, Cain. I mean, you took his life, I take yours. You want fair? I can give you fair. What, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you a wanderer. And he says, he, he rejects that. And, and he says, they'll kill me. And, and so God says, no, no, I'm not going to leave you alone, right? I'm going to put my mark of protection on you so that wherever you go, you're going to live under God's protection. Cain rejects God's protection over his life. And it says that he moved east of Eden. And his response to God's destiny for his life was his own human response and it said he went east of Eden and he built a city. So the creation of man is the city. In response to rejecting God's covering, protection, and identity over their life, man now builds his own walls of protection for himself, and it is called the city. He calls this city Enoch. Now the word, the word in Hebrew for Enoch is initiation. So the spirit of the city is the spirit of initiation. So you move from God's, um, uh, uh, his, his in, in intended destiny for us was in the garden, right? The, the, the garden was the place of seasons. The garden was the place of Sabbath. The garden was a place where there were times for work and there were times for rest. Man's creation that Cain builds for us is a spirit of initiation. There is no seasons in the city. There is no rest in the city. There is no Sabbath in the city. There is no shalom in the city. Because we have now rejected God's destiny and chosen to build our own. 
this story of the city of man continues. We, we, we see that, 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 that now we, we see Nimrod. Nimrod is now the father not only of cities, but civilizations of cities. There's this whole list of cities that he becomes the father of. And, and the city, the quintessential city of man, Nimrod builds is the city of Babel, which will become Babylon, where the story comes to a conclusion that we'll get to pretty quickly in this story. And what is the spirit of Babylon? The spirit of Babel is that I am going to the city to make a name for myself. That's what it says of, of, of the spirit of the city. Spirit of initiation, spirit of making a name for myself, rejecting God's name for me and his purposes for my life and for me to make a name for myself. That's the spirit of Babel. And we see this continuation of, of the city of man that's built. Very quickly, what is God's response? What is God's response? I mean, I mean, if, if, if I'm God, right, and we, we see this in the story of, 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 of Sodom. Here's this wicked city. I mean, the result, the, the man's city always ends in destruction. The destiny of man's city of, of initi constant initiation, no rest. The spirit of man's city, which is I will build a name for myself and reject God's name, which, by the way, is, a, is, is an actual rejection of worship, for, for self-worship is, is what we're talking about. All of that spirit ends in Sodom. All, the, the end of, of man's city ends in this place of, of total depravity if you reject God's design and identity over your life. And, and it becomes so bad. And so what is God's response? And so Abraham is crying out for the, for the city of Sodom. And, and God's response to this, they deserve utter destruction. The city of, and, and, and yet Abraham said, please God, show mercy. God says, okay, if you can just find a hand, you know the story, a hundred. No, can't even find a hundred righteous people. Well, you know, find, find 50. No, can't even find, find 10. I mean, God is so, we see this initial long-sufferingness of God towards man's creation. You know, if it's me, I'm like, man, waste. I mean, I mean, they've just, if, they, if anybody had rejected me like that, I mean, they're done. They're not on my staff. They're not on my team. An utter, you know, rejection of everything that I have presented to you. You don't want, that's, that's our, what is God's response? I mean, and we, we see this story emerging, and then we see Jeremiah. So the, the story of Jerusalem has now been destroyed because of the sin of Israel. They're, they're taken away into captivity into Babylon. So God's intended purpose is now under the dominion of the world. Okay, now this is important for you to understand as a pastor right now. Now you, now you see God's intended purpose for his people, Jerusalem, the city of God, has now been destroyed because of their rejection of God, and they've been taken captive by the creation of man, which is Babylon. And, and, and they're living there. And then you would, you, would, you, you would now, you know, think in this narrative, in this story, what, what is God going to do with his people? And Jeremiah comes on the scene, and he gives us a totally counterintuitive response. Right? We, we always use this verse, and we use it for our sermons, a great verse, because it can apply to about, just about anything. You know, God's going to give you a hope and a future. You know, when anything's going bad in your life, God's going to give you a hope and a future. You know, your marriage is going bad, God's going to give you a hope and a future. Your kids are rebel, God's going to give you a hope and a future. The context of that verse is actually what? It's actually that the children of Israel have been living in Babylon for 70 years. And, and, and they've, they've moved into the suburbs. They're living a subcultural life outside of the city of Babylon. And Jeremiah comes along, and this is his prophetic word to the children. Move into the city. Marry there. Have children there. And as the city prospers, so shall you. The children of Israel, your hope and future is inside of man's creation. Why in the world do we love the city? If it's such a wicked, evil place, this part of man's creation, why in the world do we feel drawn to the city? Let's face it, we like the city, right? And yet it's man's creation. Why, why do we feel drawn there? What is it's so attractive there? You see, the beautiful thing about God is that he is a redemptive God. That his response to this world and everything that's created in his world is grace and mercy, not rejection. So, so what, he, what he says is, look, Cain, in all of his sin, was still created in my image. So my fingerprints are all over his creation, whether he knows it or not. And actually, I'm not, I'm not going to reject Cain's, Cain's creation. 
I'm going to redeem Cain's creation. And in fact, I'm going to change my original purpose. I started out in a garden, but guess what? I'm going to end, and the future is going to be with a city coming down from heaven. I'm going to take what man's created. I'm going to redeem it and make it perfect, and that city is called Zion. So now the city of Zion becomes our prototype for our future and our destiny. Why do you love the city? Because God loves the city. Why does God love the city? Because his creation has chosen to live there. And so our, our response, and what is Jesus' attitude towards the city? I mean, look at the, look at the picture of this. Look at the picture of Jesus that's so rejected by the city of Jerusalem that he hangs on a hill outside on Calvary overlooking the, overlooking the city. They so utterly reject him that they kill him on a, on a, on a mountain overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And that city of Calvary is a city high on a hill. It's Zion being demonstrated. And what is Jesus is at? So, so Jesus comes along and says, Cain, you, you were, your curse over your life was to be a wanderer? Guess what? The foxes have holes, right? What does the verse say? Bird has nest. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? Cain, I'm taking your curse. I become the wanderer for you. I take that initial curse, I take it upon myself so that you can have freedom, so that, that, that you can experience this new city that I'm building called Zion, right? And we see this narrative thread throughout. We're given instructions about how we live in this, in this corresponding city. So when I hear, and we'll start moving into, what is our attitude as the church towards the modern-day city? I mean, I hear a lot of this language, you know, and it's easy language to use. I'm going to take the city, you know. I'm going I'm to transform the city, right? And I understand what people are saying in that. But, but, but really, I think I'm, I'm going to challenge their theology a little bit. Because it's never our job to take over Cain's creation. We can never transform Babylon. Right? I mean, our, our, our job, our task in the dispensation that we were given. Now, one day, Jesus is going to transform it all. Don't worry about it. When the eschaton comes... It's, it, it, Babylon's over and the Zion reigns. And it comes down as the perfect city from heaven. It becomes the city that all of us will live in. By the way, this city is a beautiful city. Zion is a beautiful city. You know why? It's a garden city. It's a city that a river runs through the middle of the city. God designed Zion in this beautiful place, which is a blending of the garden inside the city of nature. It doesn't have any of the trappings that we see in, in, in Babylon. And so, so, but God has this vision that he's creating for us of Zion, but it's the city that is now and not yet, right? I mean, that's how we live now as kingdom citizens. So it's the children of Israel is the prototype of living in the sense of captivity within Babylon, but building Zion in the midst of Babylon. So here you have Daniel as a, as, a, as a perfect prototype model of what it means to be a citizen of Zion within Babylon. He lives through four kingdoms, four of the most powerful kings in the history of humanity, is, is this refugee who finds residence and does exactly what Jeremiah calls for, moves into the city, prospers in the city, and as his leadership grows in the city, Babylon is prospered because of his citizenship within Zion. So, so he raises a generation of young people who understand the ways of the Babylonians better than the Babylonians, but they know when not to eat the king's meat. I mean... And, and this, in the modern context of the city, is, is our disposition towards the city. So the, the, the city, real quick, in, the, in, in three points, the, the, the spirit of the, of the city is there, is there is no one truth. There is no absolute truth in Babylon. Okay? The, the modern city does not allow for absolute truth. So it's a spirit of relativism and pluralism. Choice is allowed in the city. So even in your most, even in, you look at Dubai, right? Here is a city in the heart of Islam. But, but Dubai, the, 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 the leaders of Dubai understand that we cannot have absolute truth in Dubai. We cannot institute fundamentalistic Islam within the city of Dubai. Our commerce will not thrive. 
the, the, the Tower of Babel will not be built inside of Babylon if we say that there is absolute truth. So even in a place like that, if you want to be a prosperous 21st century city, you have to accept the concept of pluralism and relativism. Now, for Americans, we don't like that. That's the discord right now in our political scene right now. We have been living in, quote, a Christian nation since our founding 400 years ago, since we moved over here, in order to create what we call Christendom, a Christian nation. And so we have had the privilege of living in a place where we have been the custodians and guardians of absolute truth for 400 years. And now we're losing it and we're angry. Now, th this should challenge us. Because now what we say is, if the context is changing, then, then pluralism and choice and relativism will rule as the spirit of the city. Otherwise, we have to believe we have to go all the way and create a theocracy, where we have a dominion theology, where we actually believe that we control Cain's destiny, politics, social environment. Here's the thing about Christ. Christ doesn't force himself on anybody. Christ allows for choice, right? So, so we have to get comfortable, which in our suburban rural theology, we didn't have to get comfortable. We have to get comfortable with living in a pluralistic society. We, we have to get comfortable with living in a place where most people believe in relativistic truth. Now, this changes the whole tone of our, of our mission and our messaging in the context of the city. So we have, to, we have to work hard about what do we mean by truth in the city? in the face of what the city. So, so not only truth, but, but what does the city say about meaning? Meaning. Not just truth, but, but, but meaning. I, I have come here to make a name for myself, right? I have come here, and what, 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 what do we say? We're here to lift up the name of Jesus. We're not here to make our name great, we're here to make Jesus' name great. Now, 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 unfortunately, a lot of the times our, our, our church methodology is really about our, our, our church finding a brand, a meaning, a logo, a, a reason for existence in the city, and making our name great. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are, are, are bad. We need good branding. We need a good image. We need, we need to do that. But sometimes that doesn't become a means to an end. It becomes the end. And that's not the purpose of what Christ is trying to do in the city. It's not to make our name church great. It's not to make Highlands great or Saddleback great or, or Willow. All of those things are wonderful instruments and organisms for the kingdom of God to come to the city. But our job is to make the name of Jesus great. Right? And so it's to lift up his name rather than our own. So, they, so, so there's, this, there's this sense of meaning. What is the sense of meaning that we bring? We bring transcendence. We, we, we bring a lasting, eternal hope to the city. Now, now we also bring a meaning that really is, is, is thicker and more substantive than what the world offers. Because all they have is this endless cycle of initiation that began with Enoch. I don't care what you build in the city, someone else is building something bigger right next to it right now. You can have the greatest restaurant in the world in the city right now. There is a young chef that is working on taking you down the next week, and your Yelp reviews are not going to be as good as his. I mean, there is this constant sense of initiation that takes place in the city, and it is, it is, it is so exhausting because there is no true meaning there. And so Zion is a picture of meaning in the place of meaningless Babylon that has no abundant life. So we not only bring eternal life, but we bring abundant life to the city. We bring true meaning. We bring transistent meaning in the life of the city, and we exhibit it as citizens of, of Zion within the context of Babylon. This is hope. This is, ho this is true hope. Hope for today, hope for my family, hope for my marriage, in the midst of where it's all falling apart, and transcendent hope for eternity. This is faith, which is truth. This is hope, which is meaning. And this is love, which is community. There is no love in the city. I mean, there is no lasting. People come to the city, and it's so ironic, because they're surrounded by people, and yet they're the loneliest people in the world. I mean, I mean you, you can be walking down, and, there, and the reason is, is because it's a place of anonymity. Because there's, there, there's no family. There's no extended family. There, there, there's no accountability. 
right? So we're raising a millennial and, and even the Gen Z generation that, that talks about they crave relationship, they say. They say they crave, but they want relationship with no accountability. Yeah. Friends, there is no relationship without accountability. I mean, we, we have been built to be part of a family, and the family is being ripped apart by the 21st century city. City life everywhere I go, whether it's in India, whether it's in China. You have the largest forced migration in the history of humanity taking place in China right now. The, the government of China has moved, forcibly moved 450 million people from the countryside into the cities in China. You know that, that those families are not allowed to bring their kids with them when they come to the city? They leave them behind in the, in, in the rural areas, fatherless and motherless. This social experiment that they are conducting right now is going to be devastating upon their society because God built us to be part of a family. We have a fatherless and a motherless generation right now and the reality of that happening. And so what do we offer? We have to offer community. We have to offer communities of love. You heard Paul Andre talking about they don't call them campuses. They call them communities. Why? Because people in the city are craving a community with accountability and love. So this is a, a theology of faith, hope, and love, a, a, a theology of truth in the midst of meaninglessness. We offer hope in the place of loneliness and isolation. We offer community and love. That's why he's saying we're actually the hope of the city, because we can offer what the city can never give you in Cain's creation. We can offer you Zion. Okay, if, if, that's, if that's who we are, then what is our role as spiritual leaders and pastors in the context of this environment? What is it that we actually do when we say, I feel called to pastor a city? See, we, we, we often use this phrase, the, 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 the church... We say the local church is the hope of the world, Great Heibel's line. But what we really intend in our theology in that is that my congregation is the hope of the world. That's not what it means. I mean, go back to the Apostles' Creed. We are the one holy united Catholic church, the Catholicity of the church. The, the, the church, the big C church within the city is the hope of the city, not our local congregation. You know, I've been, I've been working, in, I live in South Florida. I live in the city of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Fourth most never-churched community in the southeast United States. All right? And uh, actually, number one never-churched community in the southeast United States is Palm Beach County, where Todd and Julie pastor at Christ Fellowship. So across South Florida, we've started something called Church United, which is our gospel city movement across all of South Florida. And as Todd and I have journeyed over these last several years to build Church United, and that's what I'm going to get into, is how do you do that? How do you build a city movement? What, what Todd began to realize is, look, I took this church from my dad with 12,000 people. I, I inherited a mega, a mega church, and, and, and he's grown it. I mean, they planted Port St. Lucie two years ago. At Easter, they had 10,000 people at Port St. Lucie alone. They, they, they had over 65,000 people attend their churches in Palm Beach County this Easter. And you would think, man, Todd and Julie, they're pastor in a city. And what Todd has realized is, what, what's win for me? Is it 100,000? Even if it's 100,000, I still don't move the needle on this being one of the, mo the, the, the number one never-churched county in the southeast United States. So what's, my, what's, what's, what's mine and Julie's legacy going to be in Palm Beach County? Is it going to be that we grew a church of 100 to 100,000 and we never moved the needle? We could never demonstrate that the kingdom of God has come to Palm Beach County? And what he realized is, as a second-generation megachurch pastor, it doesn't matter how big I am because the local congregation is not the hope of Palm Beach County. The church of Jesus Christ is the hope of Palm Beach County. And how are, are we together, which is the theme of this whole conference, how are we together? And, and, and together now it's to become very embraceive, very broad. But as Keller says, it's not so, you know, when, when, when everything is mission, nothing is mission, right? So, so, so who is it that we categorize theologically as part of this, of this church? It's not that everybody is. So, so somehow, that's why we come in with the gospel. When we talk about a gospel city movement, the first thing we start with is gospel. Why? Because our definition is orthodox Christianity. So, so now we've got, I, I love what, uh, help me out with this, uh, David, but uh, I was with Larry Stocksdale. What does he say? He said, we, we, 
fellowship with all, partner with some. No, you were right the first time. Some and then a few, right? <laughs> and we build on our sons and daughters. So, so, so this, this concept of there, there, there's these levels of partnership that we have that the first thing you need to do as a, as a, if you say, I, I, I want to be part of pastoring my city, I'm going to get real practical here. I mean, that is such an easy thing to say. I'm going to pastor my city. I mean, you know how hard that is? To actually, to actually do? How do you actually put that in practice? Well, there, there are certain elements that are going to be absolutely critical in order for you to have any impact on your city. So, so, so Church United South Florida, how many of you know what happened in February in, 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 our, in, in Broward County? What happened? So Stoneman Douglas happens, right? Okay, this is in Parkland, which is one of the wealthiest zip codes in our entire county. All right? So, so, so you would think, this is not socially, uh, you know, uh, at-risk neighborhood. We're, we're, I mean, this is, this is the wealthiest kids in our entire county go to school at Stoneman Douglas. And we have arguably the greatest social crisis in the history of our, of our county that has just taken place. Within, within 18 hours of that, I, I am standing right outside the school, leading with other leaders of Church United a prayer vigil with the city fathers and with the governor of Florida there to have a prayer vigil. Now, this is, that might not sound a lot like to you. I mean, if this happens in Birmingham, Alabama, of course they're going to have a prayer vigil. You just don't have sanctioned prayer vigils in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay? Those 17 kids that died, the majority of them were not even Christians. Jewish, Buddhist, Muslim, agnostic made up the majority of those kids that died at Stolman Douglas. So why is the church being asked to step in? Because for three years, we've been building relationship and credibility inside that city. It, it happened the year before when we had a shooting in January at our Fort Lauderdale airport. You remember when that happened? So what did we do? I mean, within, a, within a minutes of the shooting at the Fort Lauderdale airport, on my Church United WhatsApp, it starts going crazy. All the, all the city fathers, the spiritual leaders of that city, we're now talking to each other because we built, we built real relationships with one another. And, and, and together, we feel it's our responsibility to pastor this county. Whether you're Reformed, Charismatic, Pentecostal, Espanol, African-American, Haitian, Brazilian, which is what we are. In, you know, in our county, in Fort Lauderdale, on, on any given seven, uh, Sunday, uh, only about 49% of worship is even in English in Broward County on any given Sunday, right? So I'm talking about reaching out to the whole church in your city and building relationship across ethnic, racial, socioeconomic lines to build true, to build a true church that, that shares. And I'm going to talk about what, how to do that. What does that mean? And so, so my phone starts going. And so we decide as, as the church fathers, look, approach the mayor, not as an individual church, but as the church of Broward County. Because now we have, enough we have enough credibility to speak on behalf of, uh, of this community called the church in South Florida. And we say, anything we can do for you. What is it that you need right now? And what they find is, man, we're going crazy at the hospital. We got people coming. We had 37 families, I think it is, that, have, that, that, that are in the hospital right now. They've got family members that are trying to fly in from all over the United States. A lot of them don't have a, uh, any insurance. We don't know what we're going to do for the funerals. We don't know what we're going to do to put up these family houses. And, and our, our response as Church United was, we got it. We, we got you. Just, we got you. We call one of, one of the pastors says, oh, man, the, they're, they're taking them all to Broward General. The, 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 the administrator, for, 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 uh, he goes to my church. Do you realize the people that we have sitting in our pews that have never been mobilized for true mission within the context of the city, they're waiting there. And many times all we've got them doing is parking cars. These are people that have amazing resources and authority and influence in the city, and we never use them. And so within a matter of minutes, this guy's on the phone with us. He's talking to long story short. 
We come in that Sunday, we say, let's take an offering. Let's take an offering for the city. So the churches across Church United take an offering for the city of, of, of Fort Lauderdale because of the prayer shooting. We paid every hospital bill. We paid for every family member, every bill that they had come into the city. We had money left over after that to set up a fund for that thing. Front page of the Fort Lauderdale News. Now, Fort Lauderdale, you remember the hanging Chad thing, the whole thing with Broward County? I mean, we are one of the most liberal, liberal progressive, uh, democratic cities in, in, in the United States. I mean, we, have a, we, we are the largest gay community in the United States now, more than San Francisco. We have, the large, we, we have been more than gay-friendly. We have been actively pursuing gay tourism for, for years in Fort Lauderdale. To change it from spring break to a place where gays feel safe. And, and so this is a welcoming place. Largest gay community. One of the largest Jewish communities in the entire country. Front page of the Fort Lauderdale News. Church United takes care of everything. This is Zion. This is what Zion looks like. You know? You don't come in demanding for your voice to be heard. You come in in, in service, in humility, in brokenness to say, what can we do to serve you? And in the midst of that, you begin, you begin to build it. Okay, I'm going to go real fast. How do you do this? How do you, how, how, how do you begin to do this? And, and what I found is that... that um, we have a process that we have at One Hope that we applied to this. This is what we call outcome-based ministry. We applied this to Church United and other, and other city movements across America. By the way, in my dissertation work, which I'm doing right now on gospel city movements, over 322 gospel, mo gospel city movements ha have now become operational in the United States. Because what we're realizing as the church is that none of us can do it alone, and they're starting to come together. The, the largest, most successful gospel city movements are in the most progressive liberal cities in America. Because they understand they can't go it alone. So the first thing we do, these are called the five Ds. I'm going to give them to you. The first thing you have to do is discovery. You have to discover. You have to do an exegesis of your city. Because every city is distinct. We see that in the book of, of, of Genesis. We see this in the list of cities that, 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 are, that are talked about there, that Nimrod builds. Every one of them has their own. Every, spirit has, every city has a spirit. You know, I mean, Los Angeles has an entertainment spirit. Right? Uh, uh, Washington, D.C. Has a, has a political spirit. I mean, Miami is what I call an F&F &F city, a fun and finance city for all of Latin America. Dubai is an F&F &F city. Singapore is an F&F. Every single one of these cities has a different spirit. You have to exegete your city. You have to know what, who is your city. You know, where, where in our discovery process are, are, are the needy places in our city? Where are the gaps in our city? What are the most at-risk com uh, com communities? In so, so we did a whole, called, uh, something called um, Discover Broward. We did this baseline research. Because here's the thing. You cannot measure whether you have any transformation going on in your city if you don't have a baseline of where you started from. Okay? And, and you can talk in triumphant language, oh, we're taking the city. Oh, God's kingdom is being blessed in the city. Oh, you know, we're, we're growing. And, and you give anecdotal things. That doesn't mean squat to the city. The city wants to know tangible outcomes. What have you actually done to bless the city? What have you done to prosper our city? And so this begins to identify what are, what are the needs. So out of, that, out of that discovery, then you move into the second phase. So you've got to exudate your city. And, and part of the discovery is to do two things. It's to build asset mapping. So what is it the church has? What resources do we have? What people do we have? You know, what influence do we presently have? That's an asset map as part of your discovery. And the second thing is you have to do needs assessments. So, so, so what, is the, what is the pain of my city? And, and, and then once you have this discovery, that, and this also begins to say what is the texture of leadership within our city? Which pastors have great influence in the city that other people are going to listen to? You know, what, what is the racial breakup of our, uh, of our city? We need proper representation here of Latino, African-American, Asian. What is it that, so, so, so all this takes place in the discovery stage, and then you begin to build these asset maps and these needs assessments. Then you move into the second uh, D, which is design. So, so now we're going to design our gospel city movement for our particular city, and it won't look like others. You can't just take Austin's design and say we're going to lay that over our city. You can't just take what we've done in Fort Lauderdale and say this is how I can do it over here. No, you've got to come up with a particular design that's targeted and tailored to your, you need to understand your times and know what to do in your own city. So you design it, and here's the thing about designing outcome-based gospel city movements. 
you, 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 do, you begin with the end in mind. What does it look like for the kingdom of God to come to your city? Now that you know all this data. So for us, there were some key things that began to... And, and, and you do it across three domains of designing with beginning and the end of mind. Spiritual outcomes, social outcomes, and cultural outcomes. Now this doesn't sound real exciting about pastoring a city. Guys, this is pastoring a city. What are the spiritual, social, and cultural outcomes if the kingdom of God, if Zion comes to Babylon, what does this city start looking like? I mean, for, for, for us, there, there, I mean, you can come up with, with a million social outcomes that you need to have happen. I mean, what we found is that Broward County, okay, Broward County was the most financially insecure city in the United States, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You say financially insecure. Now, this is weird because Hillsboro Beach which is on the beach, right now has the most expensive home in America for sale. A $162 million home for sale right now on Hillsboro Mile, Hillsboro Beach. You can drive two or three miles from there and you'll find yourself in Parkland, which is one of the most seven at-risk communities in Broward County. Abject poverty. Crime rate of 722 when we started working there 10 years ago. That means 722 violent crimes committed per square mile per year. That's worse than any neighborhood in New York City. How can it be that you got a city, you got the most expensive home in America on Hillsborough Mile and three miles away, you got one of the most insecure, unsafe communities in all of America with a crime index of 722? Because you've got incredible financial disparity going on. You've got the ultra-wealthy that come to South Florida in retirement. They've made their money. They're going to live a life of leisure. And then you've got all the service people that have to come in, combined with all the people that have come up from the Caribbean and Latin America to try and find their new life in America. So you have abject poverty next to extreme wealth. You know what I call that in the Bible? I call that injustice in the Bible. All right? And so how are we going to speak to the justice of our city? How are we going to be able, I mean, and we've got, we've got the same, what we found in our research, we've got the same disparity in the church. We've got our rich, white, Anglo churches, and we've got our poor, storefront, ethnic churches that don't have crap. No resources, nobody to help them reach their communities. You, you, can, you, can, you can have great measurements of how many people come to your church, what your annual budget was, how big your buildings are, how many multi-sites you started, and if you haven't seen the poor of your city, then there is no justice in you then you are not the church that I want to be a part of. All right? So what do, how do we know whether that reality changes? It's for us to be able to say, we're, we're going we're gonna to change, we're going to move the needle on. We are no longer going to be the most financially insecure city in America 10 years from now. And we're going to measure that. We're going to start measuring financial insecurity. How, how do you measure poverty? How, how do you, these, these are things, if you want to pass through your city, you better start getting into some of this stuff, man. I mean, how do you alleviate poverty in an American city? You, 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 know, you know, the number one deterrent of, of, of cyclical poverty, anybody know what it is? High school graduation. You know the one, number one predictor of high school graduation? Third grade literacy. You want to, you yeah, third grade literacy is an absolute 100% best indicator of graduation levels. So, so look, you want to eliminate poverty? It's not about handing out water at soccer games, guys. It's not about handing out a turkey at Thanksgiving. All right? That's not social justice. I mean, getting little boys and girls to know how to read at three years old, where they'll graduate from high school, that's dignity. That's justice. That's Zion. That's abundant life. All right? So that becomes one of our tangible social outcomes. You want to pastor your city? Find out what the, find out what the social outcomes are. And contribute towards that. And, and you can do it. Other, foster care was a huge one for us. One of the largest foster care. You, you want true religion in your city? Love the widow and the orphan. You, kingdom of God has not come to your city. You have not transformed squat. If, if you've got a high percentage of orphans in your city. So, so foster care. So what is our deal? Our deal is the Church United in South Florida, eliminate any waiting time in the foster care system in Broward County because Christian families are there to take every single one of those kids. We're going to do that in three years. We're measuring that. We're, we're finding out. We're going down to the zip code now. 
you know, this, the churches have to own this problem. And that needs to be a social, so, so spiritual outcomes, all right? Um, it, it's got to go, we got to move that never church needle. Right now, Broward County, 20, 24% of, of, of Broward County never church, no, that's Palm Beach. We're, we're 18%, 18% never churched in Broward County. That means 18% of our population had never, has never been into a church before. Okay? Now, look, I'm, I'm all for church growth. I love church growth. I, I even love, I even love, uh, I, I don't know what you guys call it here in America, but I, I love when, I love tra- you call it transfer growth, right? I love transfer growth. People say, why do you love transfer growth? Because people are finding a life-giving church where they're going to stay in church. I like that kind. I mean, we, we, we don't want, we see kids out of these small ethnic storefront churches that are in their language, that are leaving the church in droves. I would rather see them as they're, as they're adopting English as their primary language to find a life-giving English-speaking church. But we need to be intentional about how that transition happens in South Florida, how the Brazilian, Haitian, Latino kids that are coming out of, in many cases, legalistic storefront type of churches with no governance that have no connection to American society and culture, they're losing their kids. How do we build bridges with those churches? How do we help them raise up leadership? Not just, not just talk about stealing their kids. We, we, we'll never be able to do it. We don't culturally know how to, uh, how, to, how to do that. We don't know how to contextualize our message well enough to those kids. We've got to build bridges to ensure those kids are our kids now. They're part of our responsibility. Are we measuring and tracking that? Spiritual, social, cultural outcomes. How do we design our programs? How do we design our mission? See, for, for, for many years... Uh, church unity in America was done for the sake of pastoral leadership to have unity. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about unity for the sake of unity. I'm talking about unity for the sake of mission. I'm talking about unity for the sake of Zion to come to Babylon. And, and that means us having a, a deeper, intrinsic missional relationship with the rest of the church like we never have before. You want to be part of pastoring a city, you've got to to talk about unity for the sake of mission. What is it that we're actually going to do together, okay? And how are we going to contribute to one another? And I'll get in on how you do that in a second. So you, you begin to design those programs. You discovery, you design, you do, all right? There's no silver bullet solution to this. This is not a destination that we arrive at. This is a process that is continuous. And so you just start doing. As soon as you identify what the outcomes are that we want in the end, you, you, you start doing activities towards that end. It's never perfect. It's always messy. But you just better start doing it. Some people are just, they, they just paralyzation fixation. I mean, on, on getting a perfect program, on getting a perfect product, on getting a per, you know, and they never do anything you got to start doing. And then once you start doing, then you bring it back in and you start documenting. You start measuring whether it worked or not against the discovery and the design that you helped establish. You, you discover it, you design it, you start doing it, you start documenting and measuring whether it worked, why it didn't work, how can we do it better, what are the missing elements to this program actually having, uh, actual outcomes that, that, that are sustainable and that are effective for our city. And then, then you enter the last stage, which is dream. This whole process of, uh, of, of, of dreaming to be able to say, uh, how can we improve on the existing vision that we as the church, as the spiritual fathers of the city, see happening? What are new opportunities that God is bringing us right now? How do we dream about the future of our city? Now, I want to go back, I want to go back and give you a conceptual framework for actually doing. Okay? So, so there's, there's five elements that I have found that are essential to a gospel city movement. Here's the, here's the five, here's the five things. And I didn't, I didn't come up with these. These came out of Harvard and Stanford in 2014. And this became, this has become the, the greatest conceptual framework for, for social science over the last, over the last four years. And it's, it's the science of collective impact. Okay, and here's the five pillars of collective impact, and they match perfect with gospel city movements. So here's, here's, the, here's the five elements of collective impact that, that everything needs. This is what, what we call evidence-based programs. 
How many of you want evidence-based programs? How many of you want things we can point to in the city and say, God, we've made a difference, spiritually, socially, and culturally within the context of our city? Well, you have to have a framework in order to do that. And here, here's the five points of collective impact. We don't have time, and I, I've got all this I can send to anybody that wants it, and I don't know how we're going to do that, but we, we got to... Okay, we got text instructions for you to get all this content. So, so here's the five pil pillars of collective impact, which is a conceptual framework for transformation over your city. You know, I hear so much of this transformational language. We're transforming our city. Really? How? Tell me, tell me how you're doing that. Show me what it is. Okay, collective impact. Number one, you have a common agenda. The participants have a shared vision for spiritual and social and cultural change that includes a common understanding of the problem and an agreed-upon approach and activities for solving the problem. Okay? That's what unity, that's what missional unity is. You've got to have that. If, if you don't have that, you're not going to do anything together, collaboratively. The whole point of this conference is together. So, so what are we doing together? We have a common agenda around that. Okay? So what is that common agenda? Do, do we agree on it? Number two, you have a shared measurement system. Having agreed upon ways that results will be measured and reported on. So, so, so these are the things that all of us as a church community, as city fathers, have come together. So our, our structure in South Florida is, with, with, with Church United, we started in Broward County, and, and then the only reason we found unity in a common agenda, you know why? Was because we had two of the biggest moral failures America's ever experienced in the pastoral community. Bob Coy at Calvary Chapel and Tully and Chavidjan at, 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 at um, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Two highly visible church leaders who had moral failures. Y you see, it's out of humility that you realize that you can't do it alone and that you need each other. So it's out of a crisis. I mean, we don't have a lot of mega churches in, in Broward. I mean, this is, this is unchurched progressive America, guys. And, and we, had, we, had this, we had these two elephants in the room, Coral Ridge and Calvary Chapel. And both of them experienced moral failures within two years of each other. And the church is reeling. What a great fertile soil for the Holy Spirit to move in a place of unity and to come up with a common agenda. A shared measurement system. We agree that this is what is important to us and what we're going to measure. Foster care, third grade literacy, never church communities. There's a church planning initiative that comes in there. So there's all these metrics that we agree on, and there's a shared measurement system for how every church is going to do that. Number three, mutually reinforcing activities. Number three, mutually reinforcing activities. Coordinating a set of differentiated activities. Listen to me, differentiated activities. So unity is not shared activity. Unity is shared outcomes. And most churches want to do stuff together. We don't need everybody to do everything together. You, we, we have a multiplicity of different types of churches that are going to reach different types of people in different types of ways. The beauty, you know, our, our point of unity is not uniformity. Look at the Bible, man. God, God it really hates uniformity. He loves diversity. It's, it's, it's when all the diverse parts of the body come together in unity that we celebrate those outcomes together. So it's not shared activities, it's shared outcomes. Now, now, now they're, they're, they're mutually reinforcing, it says, because you're going to learn something from different people. We're going to learn how to do third grade literacy. Some people in our city are doing a great job of adopting public schools, coming in and working with them with an after-school literacy program. Others, like myself and our organization, have actually started charter schools, where we're actually building charter schools, funded by the government, where we have after-school programs for those public schools in the most needy. There were two F elementary schools in my neighborhood. Okay, I took responsibility for Avondale as a spiritual leader. I said, not on my watch. I'm going to stand on the wall, and I'm going to make sure that there isn't a 722 crime index in the city of, of Avondale. And, and for me, two F schools weren't going to accomplish that because they were going to stay in cyclical poverty. So I had to actually go out, and man, it was the hardest work I've ever done. I mean, and I do a lot of hard work. We reach 114 million kids in 172 countries. I don't think I've ever done anything than starting an American charter school. You know what? We have over 400 kids in that school today. In our second year, we got a C. First school in the history of Broward to move from an F school to a C school in one year. You know why? Because we love those kids. And their destinies are going to be different. 
and every year we're adding another grade. You can adopt a school. You can start a charter school. You can have your Christian school begin to scholarship at a higher level. There's a ton of things we can do to raise third grade literacy. But it's all of us contributing together, not in shared activity, but in shared outcomes. Okay? Number four, continuous communication. Continuous communication. Pastors, we don't do good at communication with other pastors. I mean, it's very superficial. And, and, and normally it's, how you doing? Great. I had 1,500 on Sunday. I had a super church on Easter. You know, what series are you working on? I mean, that's not the kind of communication I'm talking about. I'm talking about deep, continuous communication centered around soul care. About the health of one another in the city. Continuous communication. Consistent and open communication over time among key participants within and across contributing organizations. Relational trust among participants provides the communicated bridges for difficult conversations, helping provide a sense of shared purpose and supply necessary anchoring for inevitable storms of uncertainty. You try and do this, Satan will come at you with everything he can. Why? Because he does not want to see John 17 happen. Because when unity happens, Jesus is lifted up in the city. When Jesus is lifted up in the city, Satan is dead in his tracks in what he's doing. So what does he do? He fights unity. He fights these relationships. He fights John 17. It has to be intentional. And it's not just with pastors. It's with business leaders. It's with political leaders. It's with educational leaders. It's across the marketplace. It's social, cultural, and spiritual leaders coming together in a continuous circle of communication. Number five, it's building a backbone organization. You have to have a backbone organization. A backbone organization, which is ongoing support by an independent staff dedicated to serving and managing the initiative. So not one megachurch can take responsibility. You need an honest broker supported by all, all the constituency to make sure this thing's moving forward. They're there to help support, bring order, facilitation to the whole gospel city movement that's taking place. These organizations, these backbone organizations, you have to invest in them. They don't just happen naturally. I mean, I, I, how much do we give every year to it? One hope. $65,000. How much? Todd gives the same. Calvary Chapel gives the same. We've got donors given to it. These things aren't cheap. This has to become part of your missions budget. You know, it doesn't sound really sexy to say I'm giving money to a backbone organization. Let me tell you, without the backbone organization, there are going to be no transformational outcomes that happen in your city. No, nothing happens in your church without organization. People say, oh, I don't like, I don't like bureaucracy. You know what? You know what any organization is without bureaucracy? It's a guy screaming on a street corner. That's, that's no bureaucracy. You know? I, I mean, we need order in these things. So, so how do you get that type of order? Number one, you're, you're providing an overall strategic direction. So we have spiritual fathers, Todd Mullins, the pastor Doug Souter, Stefan Chavijan, the head of the Christian Community Foundation, Alan Platt, who we brought in from South Africa, from Pretoria, because he had the number one gospel city movement that I had ever experienced in the world. So we, we, we're a council of city fathers over, over the, the tri-county area. We meet on a consistent basis to set strategic direction. And then within each county, there's a, there's a group of spiritual leaders. Todd is the one who helps become the facilitator for that. Doug Souter does it in, 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 in Broward. Rick Blackwood does it down in Miami. So, so there, there is providing overall strategic direction. Number two, facilitating conversations between the partners. The left hand needs to know what the right hand's doing. Only a backbone organization can do that. I gotta move fast. Three, managing data collection and analysis. Number four, processing communications. I'll send you all this. Number five, co coordinating community outreach efforts. And number six, mobilizing funding for the movement. You wanna pastor a city? It's dang hard work. You wanna see results? You wanna bring Zion to Babylon? It won't happen without a leader doing it. It won't happen with you stepping into the gap and saying, look, I, 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 wanna, I wanna impact my city. I wanna bring change about in my city. There, there, there's a science to it that's as real as why you're at an art conference because they know how to plant churches. You know, it's not enough for us just to allow our missional, our, our missional outreach programs to be something that we have to do because we check it off on our church deal. This, this is the church, guys. You know, your missiology is your theology, right? We, we bifurcated the two, you know. We, we, we can't do that. If we're truly going to reach an increasingly pluralistic, relativistic, progressive America that is urban, 
we got to change the way we're doing things. And God will help you to do that. I'm out of time. Let me pray. Lord, we're passionate about this because you're passionate about this. You looked over the city of Jerusalem and you wept because they were sheep without a shepherd. Lord, we see that in an America that's increasingly pluralistic, relativistic, Lord God, our hearts break. We wonder what to do, Lord. Father, we, we, we read your word, and it's a blueprint for what we need to do. We need to exhibit your heart, Father. We, like Jesus, need to say to Cain, I'll be your wanderer. I'll take it. I'll take it. The church will take it. We'll serve you. We'll love you. We'll meet your needs. And in the midst of that, Lord, we're going to build Zion. We're going to build a city on a hill in the midst of Babylon, Lord God. And there's going to be a place of faith, hope, and love for our cities. Lord, I, I pray for every leader that's here, Lord, whose heart is burning for their city, Lord God. And Father, deep down in their hearts, they, they, they know that just building an individual congregation isn't going to be enough. That I have to get involved in the missional life of my city. Father, help us all to learn from one another how to do that well. For your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now he's going to tell you where to get everything. Come on, will you thank Rob Hoskins one more time? Come on, give it up for him. That was good. We are to communicate and cooperate with our cities. We're not against them. We're for the city. That was so good. I need all of those notes, and you do too. So here's what you need to do. You need to text the word city to the number 313131. The word city, C-I-T-Y, to 313131. And all of the gold you just heard will come straight to your door. All right? Text the word city to 313131. How to, how to be a network entrepreneur, okay? You've got to learn how to become a network entrepreneur. You've got to get great at networking and entrepreneurship. And, uh, and there's, an, there's another conceptual framework. For the, so that's for the rest of the story that you didn't get here, but we'll send you that as well. That's great. All right, everybody got the number, 313131. 31, 31. Text the word city to it. We'll see you tonight for an awesome service. Have a great couple of hours. We'll see you soon.